You are listening to a message from Jubilee Church. Jubilee is one church with multiple locations across the greater St. Louis area and is committed to connecting people to Jesus, resulting in God-honoring life change. For more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Matthew 14, I'm reading the, the New American Standard Bible, which I use even when I'm in England, okay, N-A-S-B. So from Matthew 14, from verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that we may go into the villages and buy food for us, for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said to him, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You little faith, why did you doubt? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for opportunity to worship you here. We love to sing out these great truths about what you've we are amazed and staggered that we are welcomed as the friends of God. Lord, it's so awesome for us to know you and to be known by you. We thank you, Father, so much for your tender concern for every individual, your Father heart for us. Father, we ask you right now, please, in Jesus' name, that your Father heart will be revealed. I pray that each of us might hear the voice of our Heavenly Father speaking to us. I pray for any who don't yet know you as Father, that you would call, you would awaken to faith those who don't yet know you. So come, Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, have your way in this time now. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we see the Lord Jesus often uh, speaking to huge crowds, thousands of people sometimes gathered to him, but it seems to me that he was very focused in his intention, that his eye was particularly on gathering 12 disciples who he was going to form into a new people. Tragically, the people of Israel at that time had come into total unbelief. They didn't believe anymore. They were far from God. Their religious leaders were far from God. And Jesus, the Messiah, came to win new faith and form a new people. And so he chose 12, uh, reflecting 
the 12 sons of Israel, bringing a new people to birth in the earth. And uh, he chose them and called them. And although, of course, he did show immense compassion, healed many, taught many, did phenomenal things with vast crowds, his intentions seemed to be really focused on these 12. In fact, we read in John 17, uh, what some have called the great high priestly prayer. When Jesus comes to his father towards the end of his ministry, and the whole focus seems to be, Father, the ones you gave to me, I've kept them, I've revealed your glory to them, they're, they're yours. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for them. And for those who will come to believe through them, they're going to be the foundation of a whole new people, and these are the ones I've been working with. These are the ones I've been training up, making into uh, what you want them to be. So they were very much the center focus. He chose 12 to be with him, to be around him, to communicate God to them. And so they're the focal point of all he's doing. So here you see Jesus with a huge crowd, and the crowd is milling around, but Jesus is training the 12. And it's interesting that against the backdrop of this crowd, Jesus is not sucked in by the uh, euphoria, the excitement, the crowds, wow, Jesus. No, he takes the 12 and he sends them, as it happens, into a storm. He's training them. He's getting them ready. I, I went for training, I went to Bible college, but I didn't have in my program, you know, turn over the page, what's the study this week? Oh, a storm. We didn't have storms at London Bible College, we just had lectures and we wrote down the lectures, and we took in the information. But Jesus trained people differently. He was going to make them into something. He was going to draw trust from them, not just pass information into them. He was getting them to trust him, to learn his sufficiency, that he can be trusted. You see, you can become a Christian in a moment. And it may be this morning, you don't yet know, am I a Christian? Am I in right standing with God? Do I know God? Does God know me? You may come uncertain, but you can be certain, even this morning, you can put your trust in Jesus. You can understand, Jesus washed away my sin, all these amazing things we've been singing, that you can know that. You don't have to be in doubt. You don't have to go out thinking, I wonder, is that possible? You can know it in a moment. You just come to him, you commit yourself to him, you pray, you, you put your trust in what he did at the cross, and you can become a Christian in a moment. But the shaping of a life takes longer. You can come to Jesus in a moment. These guys had come to Jesus, but Jesus actually is training them, shaping them, making them into something. And so he sends them into the storm. So right from the beginning, I just want to register that following Jesus does not guarantee a storm-free life. You may see a smiling face on television, Christian television, saying there are no storms, but Jesus sent these guys into a storm. And if you are in a storm this morning, maybe you've come this morning with many concerns and troubles, it doesn't necessarily mean you've lost the Lord. These guys have not lost the Lord. They're right in the center of his will and he's sending them into a storm. You might think, what's that all about? What's going on? Why, why is that happening to us? Well, actually, if you look at the stories of many Bible heroes, you'll find that many of them go through unexpected experiences. You don't anticipate this will happen to them. You see, the background to this story is that Jesus is now winning favor. He's drawing huge crowds. And they're beginning to wonder, could this be the promised Messiah? Could he be the one that our Old Testaments have been telling us for centuries will come? God kept on making this promise. He would send a deliverer. He would send a phenomenal savior. He's going to be like David. He's going to be a great king. God will send a great king who will overcome your enemies. And they tended to think of that somewhat politically. So they thought, well, David crushed the Philistines. David got rid of their enemies. And, and Saul was king, but David suddenly came on the scene. And David overcame Goliath. David became a king. That's what the Messiah will do. We want that Messiah. We're waiting for him. We'd love to get rid of the Romans. We'd like to smash them. We'd like freedom. We'd like us to be a great nation again. So they're thinking of what it will be when this one comes is somewhat confused. 
When John the Baptist comes on the scene, John the Baptist, we're told, has probably the biggest revival in what you could call the Old Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet. And huge crowds go out to him and say, are you the one? We've never seen such crowds gather. He said, no, 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 I'm not the one. But he's coming. I'm, I'm preparing the way. He's coming. He's, he's imminent. He's coming any moment. And so, yeah, another one like David. In fact, also it says in the Old Testament, another one like Moses. Moses says back in Deuteronomy 18, another prophet like me will come. The whole nation gathered to Moses. Moses was the leader. Moses was a profound leader. Moses led them through the wilderness and fed them, you could say, for 40 years. Under his leadership, they had supernatural food for 40 years. And now Jesus has fed thousands. D.A. Carson, the great Bible commentator, says that where it says here 5,000 men plus women and children, probably you're talking about 20,000 is his guess. So arguably Jesus has just fed 20,000. They're thinking, wow, this could be the one. He could be, he could be the one. And actually it's interesting because this story is referred to in several of the Gospels. It's referred to in John's Gospel and it says in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, intending to come and take him and make him king. Like the crowds are saying, he's the one. Come on, let's push him through. We don't want Herod's a useless king, he's as useless as Saul was. He's the one. They intended to come and make him king. And Jesus is not at all affected by popularity. It doesn't bother him. He can withdraw, but his disciples are not quite ready. <laughs> his disciples are saying, yeah, he's the king, and I'm next to him, I'm his friend. Hey, come on, make him king. In fact, one of the mothers of uh, two of his disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can my boys sit either side of you? And, uh, you know, my boys. And, and the boys are saying, yeah, how about it? When you become, can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? Because their concept, when he comes in his kingdom, and Jesus is saying, hmm, you need some more training. <laughs> you find it in the Old Testament. You find God's way of training is not what you expect. I mean, David himself. He bursts on the scene. You've never heard of him before. He bursts on the scene, takes out Goliath. I mean, this great strutting giant, he just takes him out. What a boy is this? And King Saul says, come in, be one of my soldiers, be one of my captains. And so David leads Saul's army out in tremendous victories. And the, and the girls start singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands. And you know, David's swishing around the palace, yeah, I have, and you're not bad, are you? As uh, these girls are all singing, oh, David, he's saying, yeah, that's me. And he's got an eye for the girls, as the Bible makes clear. So he's pretty excited. Here I go. I'm on a route. And boy, wow. And then the next thing you see is what? You see spears being thrown at him. You see Saul turn against him. You see the guy having to duck spears. I thought it was Mr. Popular. No, you're not. Run for it. And David's out of there. Where is he now? He's not in a palace. He's in a cave with 300 guys, despised, despairing people. What, what is this? 300 useless guys. I was in the palace. I thought God said. You find similar with Joseph. As a young man, he gets a vision, a dream from God that he will have government. His, even his brothers will bow down to him. And he, he's pretty adolescent. He says to his brothers, hey guys, you're going to bow down to me. Good, eh? And he's not exactly Mr. Popular. And instead of going into that, no, 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 he's, they turn against him. He's put a hole in the ground. He's sold down to Egypt. And even when he gets to Egypt, he's lied against. He's thrown into prison. You think, well, every, every step is getting me further away, further away. I mean, I had this promise that God... And now I'm in another nation, another language, another culture, and I'm in prison? And actually, by the time he's saying that, he's just one step from God's great plan for him. But every step looks hopeless. He's put through pressures. Now, why? I've read a super book. I've got a book at home by a man called Alan Redpath, great Baptist preacher, about the life of David, and he calls it the making of a man of God. So you can be saved in a moment. But to be made into a woman, a man of God, takes time. 
takes experiences, takes all sorts of stuff happening, shaping you. And Jesus' eye is on these 12. The crowds don't catch him, really. I've got to form a new nation. I've got to form a new people. I need something foundational. I'm going to work on these guys. God works hard on people that he's going to invest much purpose in. As you see in David, you see in Joseph, you see in these 12. He's looking for us who will volunteer and say, Lord, whatever you've got to do, I do want to be a woman of God. I do want to be a man of God. And so Jesus is intentional in doing this. He knows what he's doing. He himself can withdraw from the crowd. He's not so sure if these guys could. And so it's interesting, it says in the margin, he compelled them to get into the boat. They're thinking, uh, Jesus, the crowd, they're ready to be king? Uh, get in the boat. But you're going to get in the boat. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, compelled. That's the Bible word. He compelled them. Get in the boat. So Jesus sent them into a storm. So let me just say it again. A storm is no proof that you have lost the will of God. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. A storm is no proof. Because we kind of think, where did I lose God? How did I get into this? Or, again, obedience to Christ doesn't guarantee a storm-free life. Right? So these guys are sent into a pressure. It's very painful. It says that they were in the middle of the lake. And so the storm doesn't hit quickly. It's not like we've just got, oh, whoops, there's a wind, let's get off. No, no, no. They're in they're in the middle of a lake which stretches 13 miles long to seven and a half wide, and they're in the middle of it. You, it's one of those situations you can't get out of, where you think, well, we can't, we can't get out. We, we, we love to get out of things. Think, well, I'd like to change this. I just want to uh, just change this. You Maybe you go to university, you study a course, you think, nah, let's change courses. I don't like this. We'd change it. I think especially the male of the species like, like having the remote, don't we, watching television? I think, ah, oh, I changed it. Every time the commercial comes on, oh, I change the channel. Anything else on? And then my wife is saying, can we stay with this? No, I'm just changing it. Just ch now here you can't, we feel, if only I could change it, if only I could get out of this. No, you can't. See, this situation, there's no easy way out. They're in it. And you can sometimes feel, this is beyond my control. It's very scary when you get into situations that are beyond your control, I, I can't do anything about it. And then it gets really painful and difficult. The, look at some of the phrases. They fascinated me. It says, the wind was against them. So the outward circumstances become hostile. It's almost like the circumstances take on a personality. It's like, it's not just happening, it's against me. You can feel that sometimes. It's like, who's behind this? It's against me. It's hostile. I can't relax. You know, economically, we think, well, I need to do this job, and I've got to do that one as well. I mean, how, we can't make ends meet if I don't do this and this. Because I can't stop rowing because I'm in trouble. I can't just, ah, let it happen. You can't. You can't. You're in circumstances outside. You've just got to keep going. Got to keep. These guys just had to keep rowing. It says they were straining at the oars. It says they were harassed in rowing. And one of the reasons I like about this uh, Bible is it puts the actual, uh, in the margin of the Bible, it says, well, this is what it literally could mean, or here's another way of expressing it. And literally, it says they were battered by the waves, literally in the margin, tormented. The Greek word is they were tormented by the waves. And it's the same word that's used when you're tormented by demons. And sometimes you can get into a situation, you feel, ah, this is so bad. I feel tormented. I'm losing sleep. I can't get out of my mind. I can't. And you feel really pressured. Maybe you're here this morning longing for God to speak to you because you feel, oh God, I... I can't see a way out of this, and I, I just, Lord, help. And here they are, tormented by the situation. The storm's no longer in the lake, it's in their hearts. 
Now remember, this is a training program. Jesus sends them into the lake and himself goes up on a mountain. They're being prepared for what lies ahead. What lies ahead is Jesus will ascend into heaven and they will be on their own, as it were, and they will face the Sanhedrin who say, don't you dare preach anymore in the name of Jesus or we'll kill you. Wow. We were going to tell people the good news. He's alive. Well, stop it now. Wow, storm. Where's Jesus? He's ascended on high. They're getting trained. Jesus has gone up into a mountain to pray. They're kind of on their own. What's happening? And it, it says it became prolonged. It wasn't like it happened and it was all over in a moment. In fact, Jesus, probably at the end of the afternoon, sent them out, and it says he came to them in the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So the night's long gone. It's like, boy, the darkness has come, but Jesus hasn't come. And sometimes that how long cry goes up from our heart. The Psalms say that very often. How long, O oh God? Where are you, Lord? Come on, Lord. There are many Psalms that use that kind of language. Where's the Lord? How long is this going to last? And it's interesting what Peter says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing was happening to you. Now that's Peter writing as a mature apostle years later, and he's the one who's in the boat. He's the one experiencing it. He's come through the training. Later on he can write back and say, now don't be surprised. You see, one of our problems is that when we hit trouble, we're surprised. You think, well, I didn't think Christians would go through this. It's like getting in the ring with Tyson and saying, hey, he hit me. You, know, you want to feel like saying to them, you're lucky you didn't bite your ear off. <laughs> you see, you, you are pro often it's surprised. I never thought this would happen. Whereas when you, no, no, this is, this is how it is. You learn to ride it because, no, 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 this is to be anticipated. Don't count it all joy when you meet various trials. Knowing stuff, knowing this is going to produce something. Understanding there's a process happening. Again, Peter says, in 1 Peter 1, now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. These have come that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may prove genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. It seems pressure. It seems, when is this going to end? What's this all about? Lord, how long? I was so helped once when, um, some years ago, at the, uh, what we called the Stonely Bible Week, which we ran in the UK, grew to be a very s significant conference in the UK, drew tens of thousands of people, and uh, it was a great joy to preach there year by year. And I felt God brought me to a verse in Isaiah, which talks about being a polished arrow hidden in his quiver. And I, my attention was captivated by the concept of an arrow cut from a tree, you know, having a head on it and feathers and all kinds of stuff. I remember phoning John uh, Lanthorn and said, Lord, uh, John, tell me about arrows, because I knew uh, he uses arrows. I thought, I need to learn about arrows. Anyway, I preached this word, and I, 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 felt, I felt God gave me something about you know, being taken from a tree. And, and I, I really felt God spoke to me. And actually, I preached it uh, following the Bible week in Kansas City. And a guy told me more about arrows, See, what I thought was when I was converted, really I, I was like a, a tree, if you like, and like a branch in a tree, and, and I was told the gospel, which I'd never, ever heard before. I'd never heard that Jesus could save you, that you could have eternal life and know it, that all your sins could be forever forgiven and forgotten. I thought, wow, I've never understood that. I thought, well, Jesus died, I don't know, no, for purpose, for accomplishment. And I saw it, and, I, and I, I knelt that day that I received it, and I asked Jesus into my heart. And effectively, I was like a branch in a tree that said, Jesus, would you come into my branch? Come into my heart is a kind of language we might use. It's not really a Bible word, to be honest. Jesus said this to disciples, come and follow me. He said to Simon Peter, follow me. So he left his fishing and followed Jesus. He's in a new context now. He said it to Abraham in the Old Testament, come out from there, come with me, come into a new world. 
And I didn't. I stayed in my world and I was Jesus in. It's like I said to all the other idols that I worshipped, uh, move up a bit. You know, the partying and this and that and all that I loved. You know. Jesus, come in and share it all with me. And that's, I mean, many people live the Christian life like that. I did it for four years, I would say. I was having a miserable Christian experience. I was forever saying, sorry about that, Lord, please forgive me. On Sunday in church, I'd think, mm, terrible stuff I've been up to. And it's a mixture. And then one Sunday, I was in church. And I guess I'll never forget it, really. A guy preached powerfully. And for the first time in my life, I, I kind of heard God say, are you mine or not? Do you belong to me or don't you? Are you a Christian or what are you? And it came to me with real power. And I also felt this in my heart. It's now or never. And I, I really feared God for the first time ever. I really did love the Lord, but I loved other things too. And there came that moment when he said, are you mine? Maybe you've not had such an experience. Maybe you have. But for me, it was life-changing. I thought, Lord, okay, I'm so sorry. And I went home and I prayed and I just gave up a complete lifestyle. I gave up loads of friends. I gave up a, a way of living. Completely changed. Turned right around. That's what the Bible means about repenting. I changed my mind. I completely changed my value system. It was almost like I was cut out from the tree. And it's like God began to cut away the twigs and the leaves because he wanted to make me an arrow. See, when, when you're in a tree, if someone says to you, how do you like to fly? And a branch in a tree says, what's flying? Speed through the air. What's speed through the air? Hitting a target. What's a target? I mean, why do you stay a branch? All those concepts are meaningless. You can't experience them. To experience what your new identity means, you've got to come out or you'll never understand what it's all about. You can ask Jesus into your tree. He's incredibly merciful. He kind of comes to us. But to become what he wants, follow me, I'll make you. You mean it's the same piece of wood? Yeah, it's the same piece of wood, but a completely new identity. Have you come to that? Lord, I want you to make me something else. Not, oh Lord, please come, you're so good to have your mercy and you clean up after me and you watch over me. No, no, come on, into an adventure. When I look back now, I think, God, the stuff I wanted to cling to, the things that I thought were important, I look back now, I think, man, alive. That could have robbed me. I had no idea the adventure God had. I had no idea <laughs> my pathetic little life. And God was saying, you have no idea what I've planned for you. Beloved, God's got plans for us. The Bible says we are his workmanship. The Jerusalem Bible translates that his work of art. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a work of art. It's the word we get our word poem from. It's like he's writing. He's writing something over you that's beautiful and purposeful. We're his workmanship created in Christ for works. He has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Wow! I was just a branch and he's got plans for me. He's got works. He's prepared beforehand with your name written on them. This is breathtaking. But you have to come out of your tree. You have to let him say, that twig's coming off. He said, but that's me. Ouch. Ooh, ooh, ah, ah. That's my identity. That's me. No, no, it's not you, and you don't need it. Let it go. Let it go. Those, but those leaves, I've been so... No, let them go. That twig, no. See, arrows don't fly too well with twigs added to them. You've got to get cut loose. And I said this, you know, I preached this sermon, I know all about lots of stuff about the feathers and the head and all the stuff, but I preached it in Kansas, and this guy came up to me and said... I enjoyed your sermon, thank you. My job is making arrows. I thought, oh, really? He said, let me just tell you something you may not know. He said, when we get these uh, branches, he said, we put them in a machine, and there are kind of channels. We put each one in, and he said, we, then we put a lid down on it, 
and then we pour water right through. And he said, then we turn the heat up. He said, you might be interested. I said, tell me more, tell me. He said, we turn the heat up and we leave them in the heat. And then after a while, we open and we take out the branch and we scoop off the coating that's over each branch. And he said, we know exactly how long to leave them in the machine. He said, if you take them out too quickly, the coating doesn't come off. You have to start cutting. And so if you start, then you can damage the inner arrow. We don't want to do that. So we don't take them out too quick. And he said, we don't leave them in too long, because if you leave them in too long, the inner wood just starts going mushy. The heat just breaks it all up. So he said, we know exactly how long to leave them in the heat. I thought, Lord, that must be so true. You know exactly how long. You say, God, how long? He knows exactly how long. He knows. He's got purpose, meaning, plans. He said, I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future and hope. God knows what he's doing. And he's seen this guy, he sent these guys into pressure. Beloved, God loves you enough to put you into pressure. He puts you into pressure where sometimes you feel, I'm coming to an end of myself. Paul says this, I despaired even of life. But I may not trust in myself, but in him who raises the dead. He despaired of life. He went through times where he thought, there's no hope. But, but I may not trust in myself. See, it's possible to be a Christian, to have met the Lord Almighty, and still trust in yourself. How smart you are. Think how God was lucky he got you. And we can think, well, I brought all this to the package. I, you know, my tree, I got such education. I was, had an amazing degree in philosophy. I bring this in. God says, nah, it's leaves. I want you no longer. Paul says, I'm, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I sat at Gamaliel's feet. I count it nothing. But I might know him. And beloved, it's often in the pressures that you can pray that prayer with honesty. You say, God... It's just you. I know it's you. And to be honest, it, it takes heat sometimes to get that prayer to the surface. We can pray prayers. We can learn things you're supposed to say. But it's in the pain sometimes that you learn it. You say, oh, God. And you learn, no, he's my life. When somehow everything else is stripped away. And when I learned that, when everything had gone, all my friends had gone, and it was tough. And I learned in a way I've never learned before. You are my life. Can you take the pressures? Believe God knows what he's doing. He's going to shape you into something. And this is what we see. He's got these eyes, eyes on these 12. And of course in the storm, they're scared stiff because the thing you feel is the darkness has come, but Jesus hasn't come. And the biggest temptation we get is that God doesn't know what's going on. And even Jesus himself, it says he learned obedience through the things he suffered. I find it hard to understand, but it says in the word, he learned obedience through what he suffered. On the day that he was baptized, heaven opened. I, I, I ponder this, I meditate upon this, because elsewhere, elsewhere it says in the Bible, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I think, well, wonder what that looked like. What did it look like to see Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit? But when he was baptized, he heard his father say, this is my darling son in whom is all my delight. Whoa. And the Holy Spirit came on him without measure. Whoa. I mean, unbelievable glory. And then he gets sent into the wilderness. He's sent. Holy Spirit, go into the wilderness. So I guess for a few weeks, you know, you think, Glory, 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 glory. One week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Forty days of prayer and fasting. And Satan comes and says, if you're the son of God, why don't you make this into bread? If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. Jesus has been tested, tested. His triumphant cry, it is written, it is written. 
He's trained. He learns. He learns obedience through the things he suffered. At the end, it says the angels came and ministered to him. Kind of embrace. Well done. Well done. You came through it. Jesus sees us in the storm and he knows what it is like to go through a storm. He's on the mountaintop. And when it says he saw them there, I don't think it's natural. I think it would have been dark. I think it was between 3 and 6 a.m. It's dark. So we're talking supernatural knowledge. He sees not only into the storm, he sees into their hearts. He sees into your heart, he knows what's going on. And I love that passage in Hebrews and in chapter 4. I think it's almost like a beautiful commentary on uh, this passage. Hebrews 4, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open, laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone up the mountain, no, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus was on the mountain praying. It's training time. Now, the real thing, he's gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Everything's open to him, he knows. And we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but one tempted in all things like we are. One who was sent into the desert himself. One who thinks, why can't I eat? Where's the Lord? You know, he's been tempted in every way. He's a sympathetic high priest. And he saw them and he came to them. He sent them into the storm. He saw them in the storm. He comes and saves them from the storm. He comes to them. And notice this, he comes to them, he takes the initiative. They're his responsibility. I love this, he sent them, so they're his responsibility. He can't say, well, off you go, see you sometime. if, If Jesus sends you somewhere, he's responsible for you. He said, but God, I felt God told me to take this job. I felt God told me to move to here. If you know, you honestly know God sent you, you are his responsibility. He won't abandon you. He sent you there. It's wonderful to know he sent you. And he saw them there. He saw them in the storm and he came to them. Now what the, the story is fascinating, isn't it? It says they saw him and they said, it's a ghost. And they're terrified. They're more scared when he came than when he wasn't there. He's walking toward them on the storm. They're it's, He's coming, and you get these wonderful words. Jesus comes to them, take courage, it is I. Now, we tend to say it's me, but actually it is I is more grammatically correct, but it's more than grammatically correct. When Jesus says it is I, the actual Greek, if you look at it, says this, ego, I, me. That's what it says. Translated, it is I. Jesus uses that phrase often, especially noted in John's Gospel, and it's fascinating because he's saying, I am. That's literally what it means. And in the Greek, the word I, me, doesn't need, you don't need to say I. If you just say I, me, that means I am. But when you say ego, I, me, you are emphasizing something, you're saying more. Why is he saying it that way? Well, because when Moses first encountered God at the burning bush, And this voice called him. He said, who shall I say is sending me? God replies, I am that I am. This is a revelation of God. It's who he is. And Jesus, who's come, who was with God and was himself God, came to this earth and there were times when his glory shone out. And this is such a time. I am. And it's every time he says one of those big statements like, I am the true vine. There go, I am God is coming. He's the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. All those statements, it's a statement of God. And when he sometimes says, I am, it's full of meaning. At one time, there are Jews are arguing with him and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, not that I just pre-existed him, I am. And it's just they took up stones to kill him because it's blasphemous. They realized what he was saying. 
And then he said this, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now, most of our Bibles will put in the word he. That's one of the reasons I like the NASB, because when it adds a word, it puts it in italics, so you know it's been added, it's not in the original. Even, when, even in Gethsemane, when the crowds come and the thugs come to take him away, and, and he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He steps forward and he says, I am. Again, he in italics, I am. And they all fall backwards. Because they're encountering God. And here are these disciples being trained by God to become a new people. And, and they're walking on the sea. Don't be afraid. I am. He's walking on the sea. But, beloved, I really feel it's like this is the incarnation. It just speaks to me the wonder of the incarnation. I am. Or you could read it, don't be scared, Peter, it's me. And that's the privilege of being a believer. That the I am says to you, don't be scared, it's me. It's like I can know the I am as it's me. You can know him intimately as your friend. It's breathtaking that the creator of the heavens and the earth, you can say, it's me. Don't be scared, it's me. Which way do you want to translate it today? I am is there for you. Don't be scared. It's me. But the last thing I want us to look at is Simon Peter's response. I love this bit, and it's really come home to me a lot lately. Peter, Peter, this is amazing. If you were in that situation, if you're like me, you'd just be clinging like anything to the boat. I mean, that's it. I'm clinging, I'm hanging on, help, help. And, but Peter sees Jesus, and, and having Jesus near, look what it does to Peter. It makes him think, I could do that. See, do you realize what it's like? Being around Jesus has phenomenal impact on someone's life. I could do that. I wouldn't even think of that. Here comes the Son of God walking on the sea, and he says, if it's you, tell me to do it. That's lunatic. Except if you've been around Jesus for a while. It's like we just read in the passage. It says, they said, hey, these guys are hungry. Send them away to get food. Jesus says, you feed them. Must feed them. We've only got this. Yeah, we'll break it. Jesus blesses it, breaks it. Now you feed them. There's thousands of them. Feed them. Okay. Um, <laughs> is it for you? bit for you. And then gradually, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You, you do it. You do it. You do it. What do you mean? Yeah, you do it. I'm with you that you might have life. That you might have it abundantly. If it's you, tell me to come to you. He's calling us into a new lifestyle. He's not come just to give us rules and regulations. Don't do this, don't do this, don't go there, don't wear that. No, no, I'm calling you to live a new kind of life. I'm calling you to live like I live. I'm calling you to a new dimension. If it's you, tell me to come to you. And notice Peter doesn't presume, he doesn't jump off the boat and say, I'm going to have a go at this. He says, if it's you, tell me to come. He knows if Jesus says come, that's it, that's all he needs. He understands it. He says, we fished all night. We caught nothing. But at your word, you say the word, we'll throw the net in again. He learned that. If Jesus says it, beloved, if Jesus says it, how are we going to build churches across America? How are we going to do this? How are we going to plant? If he says it, we can respond. How are we going to raise kids? How are we going to get out of fear? If he's called us, we can do it. Just, just look at him. Just let him speak the word to us. If he says, you can do it. And when Jesus says, come, do you realize that one word, Greek word is elthe, one word breaks the power of what we would call the laws of nature. Gravity's turned off. Come. All the laws of nature, you haven't got a hope. Jesus said, come. It's more powerful. He spoke. 
I love that in the Old Testament when the psalmist looking back at the Exodus say, why do you fear, O sea? God spoke and the Red Sea opened. They kind of mock the sea. <laughs> why did you fear? God's, when God speaks, dear friends, when God speaks, the power is breathtaking. And so Peter says, right, he goes, he's going to go. And he walks to Jesus. He gets out of the boat. You see, when Jesus said to Peter, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Come to me, I'll make you into something you're not. And Peter writes later, Peter went through this experience later on in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, he has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the great and precious promises. I know when I first read that, the NIV translation is so clear on that particular verse, clearer than the one I'm using here today. It's so sharp. He has given us everything we need for life. I remember the first time I ever read that in my Bible. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness. Imagine you. He's given you everything you need for godliness through the, through the precious promises whereby we become partakers of the divine nature like you can walk on water, I'm a partaker of divine nature and I escape the corruption that's in the world. I, he's given me enough to stop me sinking and to make me walk. That's what Peter says in Second Peter. He's given me everything I need to live a, beloved, to live a completely different life. Everything you need for it. You say, oh, I can't. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I can't keep. Yes, you can. Everything you need for life and godliness because he's given us all that we need. And then last of all, we see Peter, we know the story. He walked out to where Jesus was. He only needed to put out a hand and he's caught him. So he's walked from the boat to Jesus. He's done it. And then the sad line, it says, then he began to see the wind. In other words, he saw the effects of the wind. He saw the waves. He felt the tug. And he began to slip. He began to slip. And Jesus says to him, Wow, tough, Peter. You did so well. I'm so proud of you. You're the only one who tried. Amazing. You got this far. Well done, son. It's hard. Walking on water is hard. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you did so well. I'm proud of you. He doesn't say any of that. I'm making that up. He doesn't say that. What does it say? The Bible says this. He said to him, you little faith. Oh, what? I got out of the boat. <laughs> I walked on the water. You little faith. Jesus is a bit grumpy today, isn't he? <laughs> he must have hit Jesus on a tough day, you know. No, 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 no. Jesus, it's so important to hear this. Jesus ever only spoke the truth. Always. He never lied. Nothing but truth came out of his mouth. You little faith. If you think about that for a moment, dear friends, it's amazing. It means Jesus thought he could do it. It's, you think about that. It's not, wow, that's impressive, Peter. Whoa, good on you, man. No, it's, come on, what's slip? What are you doing slipping? What? Well, you could have done it. You mean I could? Yeah, you could do it. You little faith. I mean, you just think about it. It's just hugely encouraging. He believes you could do it. If he says come, you can do it. It's breathtaking. You little faith. It means that you can do it. He expects you to do it. It means he's there for you to do it. It's a statement of truth. Why did you doubt? The Greek word is distatso, and it's been argued that the word has a sense of two things in it. It's like, why did you look at this and that? Why did you look at two things at once? Why did you just keep your eyes on me? Peter, if you looked in my eyes and kept walking to me, you'd be walking now. You didn't. You got your eyes off me. You looked at this, you looked at that. What's going on here? And down you went. 
If you'd looked at me, beloved, faith isn't a technique, it's Jesus and his trustworthiness. It's believing him. It's a person. It's, it's personal. It's not kind of a clever little group of words you put together. It's Jesus. And Peter, if you kept looking at me, you'd have done that. You'd have walked. Why did you look at two things at once? But note that as, as we draw to a close here, even when he sank, he's still Jesus' responsibility. Isn't that good news? You may think, well, I'm a little faith. But doesn't Jesus doesn't say, ah, oh, you little faith. <laughs> Ex-Peter, let's look for another one. No, no, no. <laughs> he's got him. Beloved, he's got you even when you're a little faith. He doesn't abandon. It's his responsibility. He called you into it. He said, come on. When he says, come on, he, he takes responsibility even, when our, even if our faith fails us, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He stays committed. He stays committed. He's for you. He's with you. He won't deny you. Maybe you're going through a trial at the moment. You've got your eyes off Jesus. You think, Lord, I can't stand it. No, he's for you. He, be he believes in you. He's training you. He knows what he can make you into. He's got plans. He's chosen instrument for things he's got planned for you. So you go through trials for a season, but he knows what he's after. And beloved, this morning, maybe God's whispered into your heart. Maybe you've come this morning thinking, oh God, please speak today. It's been so tough. I don't understand what you're doing. Well, he's inviting you to trust him afresh. He's saying, take courage. It's me. It's me. I'm with you. Like Joseph in prison, take courage. You're only one step from what I've got for you. Let's stand to pray.